Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Okay, we don't know how long it's going to hold because we don't know why it happened, but we'll try to make it through at least this scripture reading. This is kind of long, um, and there's a content consideration for our scripture tonight from 2 Samuel. I'm reading all of chapter 11 and part of chapter 12 as well, and this is an extended story that centers on sexual violence and the ripple effects of further violence following a rape. And here at Galileo Church, I want you to know that we trust you to know your own story and to know your own limits. And it's a promise that being in worship is never meant to hurt you at all. Um, At the same time, we feel like it's important to tell the truth about the world and to tell the truth about our ancestors in faith and to tell the truth about our own experiences, which often means in this space we're gonna get down in the shit. But if you didn't come here for that tonight, It's really okay. There are several means of escape. Justin has already told you about that, and no one is going to fault you for taking one of those if you need to. You can put your AirPods in right now. Um, If you're online with us on Facebook Live, you can mute your laptop. Uh, If you're in here, you can move to a different part of the building. You can go outside for a smoke or a walk and just ask a friend in here to text you when it's time for communion. How about that? Or... If you want to hear how we find the gospel when we're down in the shit, stick around. And you can always change your mind later on in the service if it's not working for you. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to acquire about the woman, and it was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and uh, wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you've just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And 
Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. And on the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were waiting warriors, valiant warriors, excuse me. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting then, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubal? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it. Encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in my sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And it became very ill. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Just, I want to say, Nicole, what a great sport you are. Thank you. <laughs> You're a good sport. Um, yeah. And uh, I want to say to the Davids and the whole tech team back there, thank you. They're just, they're back there scrambling and sweating, y'all. You know what I mean? I mean, they're sweating. Okay. Hang in there, everybody. Um, I have a couple of preliminary apologia. One, <clears throat> I will not be able to say everything that could be said and needs to be said about the intersection of faith, religion, and sexual violence in one sermon. If you are newish around here, please trust that this is not the first and will not be the last time that the biblical text will demand our attention to this matter. And that each time we come to it, we do our best to deal with it, and we hope that we learn from it, which frees both you and me from the pressure to say every single thing exactly right every single time. One sermon is just one sermon, and that is surely enough for any one Sunday. Amen? <laughs> Amen, I know. Okay, two. The gender categories in this sermon are going to be more binary than usual. I will speak of men and women in ways that help me make sense of David's world and also some things about our world. And I am hopeful for the help of the Holy Spirit to make room in all our hearts for the expansiveness of identity and experience, even and especially when I cannot quite do it within the bounds of the story world I'm entering into. So here we go. The way it's told, it's a story about men. There's David, of course, the commander-in-chief who apparently no longer goes to battle with his troops, preferring instead to remain safely at home behind the fortified walls of his city. He's bored, he's restless, he's probably drinking too much and eating too much, he's sick of everything on TV. The scripture literally says, late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. 
<laughs> Listen, no shade to anybody who catches an afternoon nap on the sofa. Resting is a good thing. But for David, with all the power in the world and nothing to do with it all day long, <laughs> he's lying around on the couch in the daytime, and that's dangerous. Ask any woman you know. She knows the hazard of a bored, restless, powerful, disempowered man. There's Uriah, the husband, the professional fighter, brainwashed into a masculine-slash-military code of honor that keeps him blindly loyal to his dishonorable king and the king's questionable cause. It's his honor code that keeps him from going home to his wife for a little foot-washing, if you know what I mean, wink-wink, a little dip of the wick, a little round of Texas two-step, the old Jerusalem jitterbug. Okay, I made that last one up. Even though the king himself has called Uriah home from the battlefield and strongly suggests that the soldier take some comfort in the arms of his wife. That would solve David's problem of the pregnancy, right? Uriah's restraint in this area is a narrative foil to David's lack thereof, which I suppose you've already figured out being the literary geniuses that I know you are. Okay, there's Joab, the general, David's second-in-command, the field commander for the current conflict against the, um, against the, uh, wait a minute, who are they fighting again? Ugh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> See, there's always another enemy. There's always another reason to take up arms and do violence in the name of God and country. The important thing to know about Joab is that he understands very well the contingencies of morality in warfare. He will do whatever the king commands, no matter if it's blatantly illegal and tragically immoral. Deploy a risky plan of attack that gets many of his own men killed in order to ensure Uriah's elimination. Sir, yes, sir. No questions asked. There are all those messengers. Messengers dispatched from the king's palace to summon, get, bring, procure, the woman the king has decided today he wants. Not one messenger with a dignified dinner invitation on a silver tray, no. But a squad of strong men deputized to detain and transport a prisoner of the king's whim. And there is the messenger sent by Joab to David from the battlefield to the palace, someone that the general trusts, someone who will communicate the nuance of the situation without getting the king too worked up. Tell him of our losses, says Joab, and if he's pissed, assure him that his U-R-I-A-H problem has been solved. The messenger does his job effectively, and David sends the man back to Joab to reassure the general that all is well, and all is well, and all shall be well. And by the way, thanks, bro, I owe you one. And there's Nathan, the prophet we met last Sunday, the one who listens for God's voice in the night, speaks to the king in the morning. Nathan, the good guy in this story for sure, speaking truth to power the way prophets are meant to do, risking his neck literally to tell David how perfectly awful he's been. But consider, Nathan's sweet little story, the play within a play in 2 Samuel 12, is also about men, one poor, one rich, 
one traveling, one of them hungry, one of them obligated to put a meal on the table, and one of them who keeps a lamb as a pet. It's horrible, the story implies, what this rich man does to that poor, poor man for the sake of the third man. Just horrible, the loss that poor, poor man has suffered. You are the man, Nathan says to David, when the king's outrage is peaked at the fictional theft of the fictional lamb, to which we could say, yeah, yeah, he's the man. He's one of many men, a whole cabal of toxic masculinity that has conspired to maintain a system that demands and depends upon the cooperation of all these men and the silence of the one person in the story who, A, is not a man and who, B, never gets to speak, not a syllable, not a sound, not the way this story is told. Indeed, her name appears only once in the long account that we read. She is called the wife of Uriah five times. A strong indication that from the perspective of our narrator, also a man, the real tragedy here is that she belonged to someone else, another man, making David's taking of her for sex a crime of theft a violation of the sixth commandment against adultery, the victim of which would be the one to whom she belonged, i.e. Uriah. That's who she is, the wife, the property of Uriah. This is surely the reason that interpreters through the centuries have portrayed this story as one of seduction and lust leading to a consensual, if adulterous, affair where the king is a victim of a beautiful woman's beauty and his own undeniable biology. It's even more perfect that he catches her bathing. It's the best possible answer to the, but what were you wearing question that sexual assault survivors are always asked. She was taking a bath. She was literally naked. How could he help himself? I, I mean, he should have helped himself. Uriah did, but, but really, you can see how this trouble got started. Two things for you to look up. You could do it now or later. Okay, three. One, take a look at the Wikipedia entry for Bathsheba. Don't read it unless you want to be infuriated, but do look at the pictures. There are lots. All these paintings by the Renaissance masters of a bare-breasted or bare-bottomed woman, hips thrust provocatively to one side or the other, frolicking with fountains and sponges or maids or, in at least one case, puppies. I'm not making this up. The painters are illustrating the soft porn sermons they have heard about her, no doubt. She was a seductress, which is another word for slut. She tempted him, teasing him from her rooftop bath. Two, Google the phrase, what were you wearing exhibit? to find all the reporting on an art installation that displays outfits worn by victims of sexual assault when they were assaulted. T-shirt and jeans, dress jacket and slacks, gym shorts and tank top, hijab, swimsuit, school uniform, military uniform, all of it 
clothing worn by actual survivors on the day or night they were attacked, displayed to dispel the myth that victims of sexual assault are available for sex because of what they're wearing or not wearing. Three, just for kicks, follow at men right women on Twitter. <laughs> Some of you know it. At men right women on Twitter for excerpts from every kind of literature wherein the tone deafness around women's bodies, women's experiences, and women's sexualities are at once hilarious and infuriating and just so sad. Here's something I don't know for sure. Is the use of this story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 as a cautionary tale about lust, seduction, and adultery, as it was taught to me, a result of our culture's willful misunderstanding of women's agency and of the danger of power differentials preserved in patriarchy? and of how really easy it is to communicate about consent when someone is really into you? Or is our culture's continued perpetuation of myths around women's responsibility for men's uncontrollable urges a result of the church's ancient and ongoing cover-up of David's rape of Bathsheba, say her name? Has Andrew Cuomo heard sermons about Bathsheba's beauty and David's lust? I bet he has. And Bathsheba is far from the only woman whose story of assault and survival is told in the text. She is far from the only woman in the Bible known mainly or only for who penetrated her body. Okay, lay with her. And which assigned male at birth babies were expelled from her body. She is far from the only biblical woman whose story is related within a framework of narration centered on men, I'm saying. And she is far from the only woman who doesn't get to speak of or during her violation. There is so much to hate about this story. <laughs> On at least three levels that I'm counting tonight, there is the first order grief of Bathsheba herself. She was a baby girl whose father would have started searching immediately upon her birth for a decent marriage match for her, one that would benefit her family of origin financially and politically. She grew up to be a survivor, survivor of sexual assault and of the system that covers it up that forced her to marry her rapist. And later, she became a survivor of the death of her first child as the pregnancy that resulted from the rape ends in a funeral soon enough. And there is first order disgust at David a man so close to God's heart, but also so thirsty, so narcissistic, so chaotic, so dangerous to everyone around him. And then just up a level from that, there is second order resentment about how the story is narrated. Bathsheba mostly ignored while her perpetrator digs himself deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble because after all, he is the one who really matters here. He's the one whose story we're following. 
And then up even higher, there is the third order exhaustion with how the church continues to ignore and cover up and enable sexual abuse by the powerful of the very ones that Jesus warned us we should protect by our life together. This story raises up all of that sadness and hurt and rage and resentment. And I know for many people in this room and joining us on the live stream, I know for some of you, it's very personal. For others, it's an exercise in empathy. It's yet another way that we've been called to love one another by understanding or at least paying attention to each other's suffering. And for all of us, together, I would hope, this story revives our hunger for justice, our hunger for education around agency and consent, our hunger for truth-telling instead of myth-making around sex and sexuality and purity and power. Which leads me, these hungers, and maybe you too, to explore the possibility of finding somehow in this awful account of a woman's undoing by a powerful man protected by a patriarchal system of secrets, of finding maybe, maybe in there, a little scrap of good news. A little scrap of gospel. I find the gospel in the narrator's inclusion of the religious nature of Bathsheba's bath. He's already told us that she was bathing and that she was beautiful and that David saw it all and wanted more. That's verse 2 of chapter 11. And he has told us that David summoned her to the palace via those messengers and has sex with her. That's the first half of verse 4. And then, for no narrative logic that I can follow, he returns to the bath and includes this parenthetical bit of information in the second half of verse 4. Now she was purifying herself after her period. It's about the bath we, we were already talking about in verse 2. It's displaced here. It's a post-coital note about the bath she took some hours ago earlier in the day. And maybe, maybe, maybe this detail is placed weirdly here in a way that's meant to further excuse David. Yeah, he's having sex with a married woman, but at least she's not ritually unclean, so he hasn't defiled himself with her blood. Shoo! But maybe... Maybe, maybe, and this is the maybe I'm going with. Maybe the narrator needs us to understand right here that Bathsheba was herself religious, religiously rigorous, participating every 28 days in a ritual of full body immersion in a mikvah. It's a bathing ritual that precedes and informs our own baptism, a ritual you would have to agree that is not sexy, not seductive, not flirtatious in any way. In the religion of Bathsheba and David, if you touch a dead body, you go to the mikvah. If you're cured of a skin disease, ew, you go to the mikvah. If you have a baby or if you have a period, you go to the mikveh. There's no frolicking, no fountains, no puppies. It's just a business-like dip attended by old women 
who examine you from head to toe before and after the bath. You step down into the water completely naked, saying memorized prayers that ask God's own self to clean you up inside and out so that you can return to worship and prayer and family. And when you have walked all the way in, you hold your breath and go all the way under and wait and pray and then come out religiously clean, no soap, just God. I read that out-of-place sentence about the kind of bath Bathsheba was taking as a whispered aside from the narrator who wants me to know that the Renaissance painters and my childhood preachers were dead wrong. What's happening here, the narrator is telling me, is more than I'm allowed to tell you, Katie, but dig a little deeper. Believe women. Even if they can't talk about it right now, they'll tell you what this is, and they'll be right about what this is. See, this too is the gospel that included in our sacred text is a painful story that will invite the sharing of more painful stories. What if the Bible included no victims or survivors of sexual assault and abuse? What if you had suffered something so taboo, the Bible never mentioned it? Just pretended that this kind of thing never happens in God's story of the world. Or, or. What if on a given Sunday you opened the pages of our ancestors' testimony and found a memory of yourself on the worst day of your life? Hurt and used, afraid and alone, but not forgotten, with a name, recognized, remembered. What if Every person who has been hurt in this way could see themselves here and know that their story, their experience has been canonized as holy scripture for those with eyes to see. And see, this too is the gospel that we have been given by the ever-present power of the Holy Spirit, eyes to see Bathsheba. We see her so much better now than we ever could before. Thanks be to God for the Me Too movement. Thanks be to God for Simone Biles and all the gymnasts who stopped cooperating in a system that excused their exploitation. Thanks be to God for the sisterhood of 11 women who are named in that indictment of New York's former governor and for the woman who is in his former office now. Thanks be to God for the number of you who have learned to narrate your own story as one of real suffering and real survival. The rest of us may not know your particular story. You might not have trusted us with that yet, and you absolutely don't have to. But please trust that when you do, if you do, we will see you the way we see Bathsheba. 
as one who should have been protected, and as one whose strength and God's help carried you through. Yeah, I know it is interesting for God's name to appear at this point in this sermon. If you are like me, you have some questions for God around all of this. I mean, in what sense was God with Bathsheba if God was? In what sense did God honor Bathsheba's religious piety, her conformity to the rules for the purification of her own body, only for that purity to be defiled by someone else's gross violation of religious and moral law? In what sense did the death of her child punish David for his sin against her, except in the most patriarchal imaginings of virility and legacy? Where was God for Bathsheba? Where is God for any victim of another person's craven and violent abuse of power. If you know me at all, you know I'm not going to try and placate you with a simple answer for any of that. What I am going to do is invite you into the company, into the co-conspiracy of people who are not afraid of questions like that. We are people who believe the Bible invites questions like that. We are people who believe human experience demands questions like that. We are people who are risking everything on our faith that God is available for that line of questioning. And that God's own story, like David's, is a story that has to stand up to interrogation. And we are people who are risking everything on God's promise of faithfulness, of steadfast love. To all the Bathshebas and to all the Davids in history. A paradox that is endlessly comforting and infuriating to me. Comfort and fury. Fury and comfort. You know that mix? Welcome to the life of faith. <laughs> Whichever one is winning in your heart tonight, comfort, fury, something else, may you feel the companionship of our ancestor in faith, Bathsheba, who is at home in the heart of God, no longer the wife of Uriah, no longer anybody's wife, just herself, called by her name, by so many who are committed to never letting her kind of hurt happen to another human. With God's help, we will not. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, Go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. 
You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.